You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Getting the word out that the end of the world is nigh is more efficient than it used to be. No more people standing on street corners wearing sandwich boards. May 21, 2011 is to be the rapture, is to be the first day of judgment. I believe it with all my heart. A wise man... Harold Camping from Family Radio is claiming that the end is near. And if you missed his radio and television campaign, well, it's hard to miss his billboards. Big brown signs reading... Judgment Day, May 21st, and a large yellow sticker saying, The Bible guarantees it. Now that's Judgment Day, but the end of the world comes in October. Welcome to Mayhem and Octoberhem on Skeptic Check on Are We Alone? I'm Molly Bentley. And I'm Seth Shostak. Uh, You know, Molly, what's intriguing about this is that guarantee, because that somewhat implies that there's verbiage in the Bible that ensures that this Armageddon is going to happen. And we'll find out more about that in just a moment. I thought this campaign was limited to the United States, but I was sent a photo recently taken in Amsterdam of a sign with the exact same graphic and the same text, except, of course, in Dutch. And you can read Dutch, right? So you were able to translate it. I was, and it was word for word the same. Well, this million-dollar billboard campaign was paid for by Family Radio. This is a listener-supported Christian broadcasting network. It's based in Oakland, California, which is not far from where we are right now. And it has a worldwide distribution. We'll hear what's behind this campaign in just a moment. But it's not the only doomsday prophecy. It turns out that it's been a busy season for end-of-the-world scenarios. Some people are more inclined to heed an ancient Mayan prophecy that the world's going to end in 2012. Now, actually, it turns out that that may just be a misinterpretation of the Mayan calendar. But the doomsday prophecy of the Mayans and the world ending in 2012 got a lot of attention. In fact, it was only eclipsed recently with this prophecy that the world will end this year. Yeah, well, it seems to be the battle of the end of the world. But apocalyptic predictions are not new. I mean, they've been around since the days of Nostradamus. When were those days? Well, not so long ago. I mean, he was a a medieval writer. He would write in these quatrains there from his uh, apartment in Paris or wherever. But I could never interpret what he was saying, and a lot of other people can't seem to make too much sense of it either. Maybe if you translate it into Dutch, then Seth could read it. But but the thing about all these prophecies is they have yet to come true. Now, humans can't even predict the weather accurately or earthquakes or the vicissitudes of the stock market. Later in the show, we'll hear what science says about possible ends to the world. But first, back to these end-of-nigh predictions that are threatening to ruin my whole day or at least my planned 2013 vacation. Catherine Wessinger is a professor of religious studies at Loyola University in New Orleans, and she's following the doomsday predictions with interest. I'm here in Columbia, South Carolina right now, and I was in the hospital uh, with a relative, and I looked out the window and I saw a van, and it was parked out there for days, and it said May 21st is the rapture, and October 21st is the end of the world. So just like over there in California, These billboards and vans, we're seeing them all over the place here in South Carolina. It's obviously a countrywide thing, but in fact, we got an email here from somebody who was visiting Amsterdam, Mm -hmm. and they they took a picture with their cell phone and sent it to me, and it was the exact same billboard that I see in California, except the text had been translated into Dutch. It was just a literal translation. So this is a worldwide phenomenon. Yes, and apparently Harold Camping, I mean, he has quite a few radio stations, and he's done a lot to promote this idea. But he's been, you know, at the business of interpreting the Bible and and making predictions like this for many years. I noticed that he's almost 90 years old. He'll be 90 years old very soon. 
And I do wonder if perhaps this is his last hurrah. You know, he might want to make a prediction that he hopes will come true before he passes away. Well, it seems to me odd to make a prediction about the end of the world because there will be very little satisfaction if he's right. But but tell me something about this Harold Camping gentleman. I mean, uh, what's his day job? What's his background? Harold Camping is self-educated in the Bible. He's not a minister. He has a Reformed Christian background, and he is part of an American milieu that takes an approach to the Bible that it's a puzzle to be deciphered to foretell when the Second Coming and the Judgment will take place. This approach to interpreting the Bible is different from what scholars call the historical critical study of the Bible, which is where scholars will take the historical context of the Bible into account and study it as a historical document. And instead, Harold Camping and people like him study the Bible as the Word of God presenting prophecies that can be interpreted to predict things that are going to happen in our day. So it's not an historical document for him so much as a tool for prediction. Now, he's mentioned these two dates, May 21st and October 21st. Suppose I'm a resident of the United States, for example, and I, you know, I'm, I'm neither Christian nor, nor Jewish. I mean, you know, the, the, the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, it's not part of my, my religious beliefs. You know, I'm just going to work on May 21st and, and, and presumably on October 21st as well. What, what happens to me? Well, what Harold Camping thinks is that the true Christians will be raptured into heaven, and that's going to begin all the catastrophic events of the end time, and that the final judgment then and the end of the world will take place on October 21st. Now, I think the interesting question is that for those people who, like Harold Camping, believe that they are the good Christians who are going to be raptured into heaven, and when nothing happens on May 21st and they're still here and they still have to go to work and they still have to engage in the ordinary activities of life, how are they going to react? I think that's going to be a very interesting thing to observe. Well, it, it could be that maybe deep in their hearts they figured they were not good enough, but it does sound as if what Mr. Camping is telling me is that on May 21st I'm going to see you know the better members of my community just disappear. Correct. Oh, well, I, I think that I would pay attention to that. And then on October 21st, is there any description of how uh, Judgment Day plays out? I mean, does, you know, do, do I see a bright flash and then everything goes away? I mean, what, what happens? I can't answer that clearly. I don't know what he's predicting, you know, except the end of the world. Catherine, didn't Harold Camping also predict the end of the world for 1994? In fact, even wrote a book with the year as the title? Yes. Now, the world obviously didn't end in 1994, or even 1984, which was also (laughs) once considered to be the end of the world. Right. Now, I understand that Camping attributed the fact that the world did not end on that day to a mathematical error. Yes. Well, uh, that seems convenient, but let me not judge it. Why why would anyone, though, find a second doomsday prediction credible if if he got that one wrong? Well, this, in fact, happens all the time in these kinds of movements, that if you accept the premise that the Bible or even, for instance, the Mayan calendar can be interpreted to predict some sort of dramatic change, and then that dramatic change doesn't happen, then people go back and they figure they made a mistake and they'll recalculate. That's one approach. Another approach would be to say that something actually did happen on the predicted date, but we just can't see it. It just happened in an invisible spiritual realm. I have to say that that I would find that a difficult argument to accept because it says, I'm going to predict something that you won't be able to see, you won't be able to measure, you won't be able to notice, in which case it's like my predicting that there's going to be a party in this room where I'm sitting in the 8th, ninth, and 10th dimensions in a half an hour, but of course you won't be able to notice it. It doesn't seem like a very valuable prediction. You know, this doomsday campaign apparently cost millions of dollars somewhere, you know, putting up all those billboards and so forth. Do you have any idea about what Family Radio or Harold Camping himself stand to gain from that? I think it's just the conviction that time is short 
and that they have to warn people that time is short and try to get as many people to convert and become faithful Christians so that they can be included among the saved. I think that's the motivation. I don't think Harold Camping is trying to build up some sort of radio empire because he's already got that. And the people who donate to this campaign and put up the big billboards or paint their vans with the signs and then drive around the country, they are all serving as prophets to warn the rest of us that if we don't convert, we're going to be the ones going to help. Judging by what I hear on uh, you know late night radio, there's never any end to uh, prophecies of doom. I mean, they, they play well. Is, do you have any idea why that might be? Why do we find that so interesting? I suppose... In a sense, it's the ultimate catastrophe movie in some some sense. Well, it's not simply a prophecy of doom. What it is, is a prophecy that life has meaning, and that life for the people who are the true believers is going to wrap up and have a happy ending. Now, of course, the corresponding perspective is that for people who are not the true believers, they're not going to have a happy ending. It seems to be the season for doom and gloom. I mean, if it doesn't come in 2011, then we have the Mayan calendar apparently predicting, or some would say predicting, the end of the world in 2012. Uh, What's your view on that? It's not as simple as the end of the world is going to come in 2012. It's actually quite complex. And the predictions are quite complex, and you get different interpretations coming from different individuals. It seems to go back to the work of Jose Argelias, who wrote a book back in the 1980s called The Mayan Factor. Certainly he's not the only author who has been making these sorts of predictions in relation to the Mayan calendar. But back in the 1980s, He was the one who popularized the idea of the harmonic convergence. And the harmonic convergence took place on August 16th and 17th, 1987. And according to Argelius, this was a time when humanity had a choice. We could either open ourselves up to a galactic being coming from the center of the universe or the galaxy, being directed toward the planet Earth. And if we would open ourselves up to that energy, we could initiate the movement into the New Age. What he felt was that the harmonic convergence would begin a period of time leading up to this other prophecy about December 21st, 2012 which purportedly is the end of a cycle in the Mayan calendar. And the people who are specialists in Mayan religion would say that Jose Argelias and people who are popularizing this prophecy really don't know anything about the Mayan calendar and that the Maya people themselves don't know anything about this kind of a prediction. Okay. So, in other words, ever since the harmonic convergence in 1987, different authors have picked up the idea about December 21st, 2012 prophecy. Some people say that terrible things are going to happen on that date. Other people believe that it's really going to mark our movement into a new age. Sounds like I ought to pay my estimated taxes. Let me ask you finally, Catherine, Do we really have any reason to believe that there will be a judgment day or an end of the world uh, in the foreseeable future? I don't think so. (laughs) That's your judgment? No, that's my judgment. People have been setting dates for a long time, even a couple of thousand years, and we haven't had the end yet. Catherine Wessinger, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. Catherine Wessinger is a professor of religious studies at Loyola University in New Orleans.
I grew up watching movies depicting the end of the world, or at least some substantial part of the world. Sometimes it was giant prehistoric creatures chowing down on New York, or ants the size of trucks invading the Los Angeles sewer system. Most frequent were visits by pitiless space aliens come to Earth to sweep us away. It was all kind of cathartic to see the fears we all have made real bubblegum mayhem. But maybe there's more. I mean, maybe there's value to these perennial predictions of Armageddon that we're overlooking. I believe that forecasting the end of the world might actually have some benefit. Many years ago, when I worked in Philadelphia for the railroads, my office mate, Joe, and I would go out for a cheesesteak lunch every day, walking a few blocks across the city center to a restaurant that probably had a hard time passing the local health inspection. And each day we would encounter a sketchy-looking guy standing on the sidewalk playing drums and a guitar and wearing sandwich boards that said, Repent now, the end is nigh. Well, we didn't pay a lot of attention, at least the first ten times or so. But then Joe and I began to ask ourselves, what if he's right? What if the end really is nigh? Had we done anything useful with our lives? I mean, maybe more to the point, given our age at the time. Had we done all those things we figured we should have done before the earth was incinerated in a searing fireball of incandescent brimstone, whatever brimstone is? Well, it made us think. I don't know if it made us improve our moral behavior much, frankly, help the less fortunate or at least not cut people off in traffic, but who knows? They say that people who know they're going to die within six months often change their lives, really concentrate on what's important, if they can figure out what is important. So maybe if the doomsayers tell us we're all going to die, perhaps that would motivate society to get its act together a bit. Seems like a good strategy. Parents use it all the time, telling kids to behave or they'll have to go to bed without seeing their favorite TV program. Kind of kid-sized Armageddon, I suppose. So I take a different attitude about those who predict that it's all going to end, whether on the silver screen or in downtown Philadelphia. Rather than simply thinking, what a bunch of hooey, I'm going to see this as an attempt to scare us into making some improvements. And it would be hard to argue that we don't need those. Coming up, why not all end-of-the-world scenarios are fiction, endings by fire or by ice, according to astronomers, plus whether humans will ever eliminate the threat of nuclear weapons. It's mayhem and Octoberhem on Skeptic Check, but don't take our word for it. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. We are talking doom and gloom on Skeptic Check, and we've just heard why the many prophecies guaranteeing end-of-the-world destruction are unreliable. And they're guaranteed. There is no denying that the universe is a dangerous place. Asteroids and comets crash into planets, stars explode, and even our galactic home, the Milky Way, might have hidden dangers, such as big dust clouds. Living in the cosmos is not for the faint of heart. Yeah, but where else are you going to live? Good point. Here's some more gloom. The universe itself, we know, is expanding, and even more, it's accelerating. Someday, it's going to end up bitterly cold and mostly empty. So whether Earth succumbs to the death of our home star or simply encounters another type of cosmic catastrophe, life on the third rock from the sun definitely has an expiration date. Death from the Skies is astronomer Phil Plate's book about the threats to the planet, from gamma ray bursts to the big rip to asteroid impacts. But his is not doomsday prophecy. These are real threats based on a branch of obscure science known as astronomy. 
These things do happen. There is some evidence that there have been stars that have blown up relatively close to the Earth. Probably not close enough to cause a mass extinction, but close enough that there have been some effects. And one of those was as recent as just a couple of million years ago. There was a gamma ray burst, which is a tremendous explosion of a star. And instead of blowing up in all directions, it sends out sort of like a blowtorch beam that marches across the sky. And if you're within 8,000 light years of this, which is a long way on sort of our local terms, but in fact relatively close on a galactic scale, that can have an effect on the Earth. And there is some indication that several hundred million years ago, we were in the path of one of these things, and it could have wiped out the trilobites. And we're talking like 240 million years ago, but we don't really know. We're not sure about the evidence for that because it was a long time ago. And we know that there's nothing out there like that right now that can really put the hammer down on us. Well, so I think we're pretty safe. But do we really know that? I mean, these gamma ray bursts, that's what you were just talking about. I don't know what it does. Does it just you know rip away our atmosphere, do something terrible? Well, it depends on the distance, and there are different ways of creating what's called a gamma-ray burst. One is for a supermassive star to explode, and there are very few of these stars in the galaxy, and most of them, or as far as we know, all of them, are too far away to hurt us. But you could have neutron stars, which are sort of the dense remnants of stars that have already blown up. You can have two of these things orbiting each other, and they spiral in over the course of billions of years, and when they collide and merge, they can collapse to form a black hole, and that will cause a gamma-ray burst. And the sort of eh, kind of scary thing about them is that you can have some of these relatively close by, maybe a few hundred or thousand light years away from the Earth. And if they're old, they're not very bright. They, they're, they can be almost invisible. The chances of those being that close to us are pretty slim. I don't think there are any out there like that. But there could be. But when you're talking about a statistical sense here, there are a lot of other things to worry about, like asteroid impacts and that sort of thing, that should be higher on our list of things to maybe be chewing our nails about. I'm speaking with astronomer Phil Plate. Now, I think many people have heard about the asteroid threat, and others will know about the threat from explosive events in the galaxy. After all, the, the point is that when these things go off, there's an, an enormous amount of energy that's released. So, you know, whenever you release a lot of energy, that's called an explosion, and that could be dangerous. But in Death from the Skies, you discuss some lesser-known threats to us. For example, simply our path around the Milky Way, because we do go around the Milky Way. I, I'm feeling dizzy already. I think we <laughs> go around once every 250 million years or, or thereabouts. That could be dangerous. How could that be dangerous? Now, there are giant clouds of dust that occupy our galaxy. And you can see these. If you're from a, uh, an area that doesn't have much light pollution, you can go out at night and see the Milky Way above you. And there are dark patches in it. And these are these giant clouds of molecules. They're called molecular clouds or dust clouds. And they travel around the center of the galaxy too. And there could come a time when the sun plows into one of these things. It doesn't happen very often. It's not about to happen anytime soon. But it's possible that when you pass through one of these things, enough of the sun's light could be blocked. Some of these are dense enough that the Earth could actually cool off. Another thing is that as the sun orbits the center of the galaxy. It bobs up and down. It, you can imagine, uh, for instance, a cork swirling around a bathtub drain. As it's spiraling around, it might be bobbing up and down as the waves pass it. And the sun is doing this as well. And as we move in and out of the plane of the galaxy, we're exposed to these particles called intergalactic cosmic rays that exist outside the galaxy. While we're in the galaxy, we're protected. When we're outside of it a little bit, we're less protected. And it's possible that every 60 or 65 million years, as the sun bobs upward in the galaxy, we're exposed to that radiation and it causes mass extinctions. You know, it seems that the universe is really out to get you. But in another sense, I guess something is out to get the universe because eventually there will be apocalypse on a truly, well, cosmic scale, right? Because the universe itself is destined for some sort of oblivion. Even the universe itself is going to eventually die, and there are any number of ways that can happen. Protons will decay, stars will die, even black holes will evaporate. And in a time period so far in the future, it's hard to even grasp the numbers. We're talking like 10 to the 40, 10 to the 50, 10 to the 100 years, a Google years from now. Matter won't exist. There will be nothing but sort of a thin soup of energy in the universe, and, and there just won't be any 
anything at all. That's what gives me the creeps. Ten to the hundred years, that's a one followed by a hundred zeros. You'd need more candles than there are atoms in the universe on your cake. That's quite a bit. That's a very distant threat. What about the somewhat more immediate threat that the whole universe may rip apart? Right. And that's one of the ways the universe might end. It's not clear what's going to happen in the distant future. We know the universe is expanding. We even know that that expansion is accelerating. It's expanding faster today than it was yesterday, and it'll be expanding even faster tomorrow. Instead of slowing down, the expansion is speeding up. And it depends on what's causing it. There are actually several different models of what could be sort of stepping on the gas here. And one of them could be that as the universe expands, the very fabric of space will get torn apart. It's kind of like a rubber band that you're pulling farther and farther apart, and eventually it will go past its its limit and shred itself. And that could happen with the universe. That seems unlikely, given what we've seen. More likely, the universe will just expand forever and ever and ever and ever, and eventually there just won't be basically anything left to see, which is kind of a... I don't know. That's distressing to me. But I don't know. I, I, maybe I'd rather have that than being ripped apart atom by atom as space-time dissolves. Well, finally, Phil, the people that are predicting the end of the world, the apocalypse, uh, the obliteration of everything that we know, do you ever get the opportunity to offer to bet them on that? I mean, this might be a money-making opportunity for you. Oh, have I thought about this? Back in 2003, when there was a woman claiming that a planet was going to sweep by the Earth and destroy us all, and she even pegged it as being on May 15th, 2003. And I was thinking, tell you what, I will give you $5,000 in cash. I'll scrounge that money up, give it to you in cash so that you can spend it on stuff that you need right now, survival gear, if you give me the deed to your house for May 16th, 2003. And I thought, how could she resist this, right? If the Earth's going to end, or at least most of us are going to get wiped out, she gets cash on the barrel right now to spend on survival gear. But it just seemed wrong. It seems like I'm taking advantage of these people. Phil Plate, thanks so much for uh, still being with us. Well, I plan on being with us for a long time. Thanks, Seth. Death from the Skies is the title of astronomer Phil Plate's book about the ways in which the world could end. He is also the author of Discover Magazine's popular blog about astronomy and skepticism, Bad Astronomy. Talk about cosmic forces. Stars are the ultimate H-bombs because they don't just go off for a fraction of a second. Their explosions continue for millions or billions of years. The hydrogen bombs we've created on Earth release only a tiny fraction of that kind of energy, and they explode in a tiny fraction of a second. But when they do, they can cause enormous destruction. Humans have had a paradoxical relationship with nuclear weapons. We build and stockpile them in order not to use them. And that tension is what kept the relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union so frosty for so long. And one could argue that it's worked. Since World War II, no nuclear weapon has been detonated in anger. But journalist Ron Rosenbaum argues that we've entered a new nuclear era, one that's more precarious than the last. During the Cold War, there were two main players at the nuclear table. But since the dissolution of the Soviet Union, many atomic weapons are unaccounted for. While prophets squawk that supernatural forces will bring about the end of the world, self-annihilation by World War III seems to have taken a back seat as an existential threat to society. But it shouldn't. Ron Rosenbaum says we flirted with nuclear disaster more often than most people realize. Ron, we hear frightened people reporting about the possible end of the world. Uh, Armageddon is nigh. But we use World War III as kind of a shorthand for describing one possible scenario for the end of the world. Uh, why, why isn't this just another hyped-up doomsday scenario, as so many of them are? Well, since Hiroshima and Nagasaki, there have been no nuclear wartime detonation. Everything's going okay. But is it really? We have a much more unstable world in the Middle East and South Asia, nine nuclear nations. People are not paying attention to just how unstable and dangerous the situation has become. Well, you speak in your book of the fact that we've gone from a sort of what you call a bistable situation. And bipolar. Of course, bipolar. All right. Even worse. I mean, maybe it's amenable to therapy, in which we had the 
United States and the Soviet Union as the only nuclear powers to one in which we have a sort of a chaotic situation. I think if you went back even farther, if you went to World War II, it was a monopolar situation. Only the United States had these weapons. So obviously that's the most stable situation if anybody's going to have nuclear weapons. But no longer do we have mutually assured destruction. How has this changed the probability that World War III would actually break out? Well, for one thing, it makes much more possible a regional nuclear war. A small war, quote-unquote, between Pakistan and India would not only kill tens of millions of people immediately, but it would kick up enough ash into the atmosphere that Scientific American predicted it might result in the later death of up to a billion people. And we have Israel and Iran, and we have Pakistan, perhaps the most dangerous place that has, you know, 100 or 200 nuclear warheads under poor control. Uh, We have a madman ruling North Korea who has nuclear weapons. The illusion of stability during the Cold War, we got used to it. We learned to love the bomb, as Dr. Strangelove said. I think this is the time we need to focus on nuclear weapons. You begin your book by describing an event that took place in 2007, which I I suspect that uh, most people have totally forgotten about, but one that brought us remarkably close to falling off the cliff. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, this was an Israeli raid on a Syrian nuclear reactor, and it could have led to a chain reaction in a way that would result in a regional nuclear war. Russian radar and satellite might have uh, informed the Iranians that the Israelis were going after them. Pakistanis, who have what they call the Islamic bomb, might have decided it was time for them to go into action. And a senior uh, British ministry official actually said, we came so close to World War III that day that if people had known, there would have been mass panic. Well, people in Europe occasionally will refer to Israel as being a cowboy nation. It's having a somewhat reckless attitude about these sorts of things. But on the other hand, Israel is what you call a one-bomb state. Not that they have one nuclear bomb, but they're a one-bomb state for other reasons, which surely informs their behavior. It's true that it's not like the Cold War where the U.S. and Russia were equal giant superpowers. One or two bombs smuggled into Israel, nuclear weapons, megaton size, could destroy the whole nation. So the Israelis feel they have to be at hair trigger, ready to preempt a nuclear strike. And then there's the question of, well, what happens if Israel is destroyed by a nuclear strike? As some nations have said, you know, we're willing to sacrifice millions of our people in order to wipe Israel off the map. In uh, On the Beach, which is uh, quite an old film now, but it portrays the, uh, the end of humanity by nuclear weapons, it, uh, it suggested that we really could wipe ourselves out entirely. World War III being a euphemism for let's obliterate homo sapiens. But is that really true? Even if you had a nuclear-based World War III, would we really wipe out humanity? Well, I think a lot depends on how many nuclear weapons were detonated. Carl Sagan, back in the 80s, developed this concept of nuclear winter, that not only the people who died from the initial blasts and the firestorms and the radiation poisoning would contribute to the death toll, but the entire atmosphere would be poisoned with uh, radioactivity and fallout, and that it would be possible to wipe out the species with a full-scale nuclear war. Now, there was a lot of controversy, and for a while there were those who seemed to be able to disprove the extinction theory. But if you notice, in January 2010, Scientific American did that study on a small nuclear war between India and Pakistan, which said that it could kill a billion people over time. And that's a small regional nuclear war. And so I don't think any scientist has come up with a conclusive number of megatonnage detonated versus possibility of species extinction or whether we could be confident in that. But who wants to come close to species extinction? Ron, was there a moment in your reporting on this rather terrifying subject that uh, you began to become particularly nervous by what you were learning? Because I, I think that if I walked out on the streets here of Mountain View and asked 10 people what they thought of the possibility of nuclear war, I think that most of them would have it very far 
from uh, what they were worried about, that uh, they, they considered that once the Soviet Union collapsed, that was the end of it. Well, I think that studying the uh, reportage and what we know about Pakistan, for instance, as the emblematic new nuclear state may have jolted me into a new awareness of the danger that we're in and that we're not acknowledging. Okay, well, I think that most people can understand the threat from, if you will, unstable or rogue nations like Pakistan. After all, they have a uh, an avowed enemy just across their border. Uh, you also mentioned North Korea, uh, Iran. There are many states that might start Armageddon via nuclear exchange. But you also write about the possibility that this could be just an accident even on our side. Maybe you could elaborate on that. Yes, I did some reporting on nuclear command and control at the height of the Cold War. And unfortunately, there were many flaws in the command and control system, which I got from people who were military men who worked within it. And the Cold War ended, and we stopped trying to solve those flaws, even though we still had thousands of operational missiles on what is essentially hair-trigger alert. And so far, we've been lucky. But there have been instances, for instance, at the end of the Carter administration, when National Security Advisor Spigniew Brzezinski got woken up and said, we're under attack by 2,200 Soviet missiles. You have one minute to wake the president up and get him to decide whether to launch ours in retaliation. Fortunately, Brzezinski waited a little longer than one minute, and NORAD called him back and said, sorry about that. These were training tapes that were fed into our screens late at night, and someone misinterpreted them as a real attack. You know, and there have been flocks of wild geese that have been mistaken for missiles attacking us. There have been, on the Russian side, an equal number of close calls. And so we can't be complacent. Everyone said we're getting used to being satisfied with nuclear power, and then Japan happened. One upside of the awful events in Japan is that maybe we'll focus on all those nuclear weapons that are buried under the Great Plains and the steppes of the Ural. Well, Ron... Is the development of ever more destructive weapons something that's inevitable once we reach a certain level of technology? This is just going to go on for the entire future history of our species? Uh, Does this say something? That's a really interesting question. I think it's one of the fundamental questions, which is is there something in human nature, a Faustian bargain with uh, technology? We're programmed to try to find out as much about how nature works as possible. And in doing so, a noble effort in most respects, we also find out how we can destroy each other more efficiently. And I don't know whether it's a genetic predisposition, some self-destructive aspect built into our genes, or whether it's just the logic of scientific discovery, but we're coming closer to annihilating ourselves rather than further from it. Ron Rosenbaum, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me on. Ron Rosenbaum is the author of How the End Begins, The Road to a Nuclear World War III. This is the end, beautiful friend. This is the end, my only friend, the end. Now, I know it all looks bad. I mean, it's a lot of destruction. But before you panic and sell off all your stocks... Send the profits to me, by the way. <laughs> should provide an email address first, Seth. The future may be brighter than you realize. Let's hear from an optimist next on Mayhem and Octoberham on Are We Alone? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? 
<laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Okay, we've been laying some pretty heavy stuff on you. World destruction, and it's guaranteed. Asteroids, cosmic radiation, and the very sobering threat of nuclear war. But it can't be all that bad, can it? Maybe it's time for the guy who thinks the glass is half full. He's so happy, he can't say his name without giddiness. I'm Mark Stevenson, and I am the author of An Optimist Tour of the Future. An Optimist's Tour of the Future sums up what this writer thinks is in store for Homo sapiens. Really? Because it's an obstacle course, Homo sapiens is faced with a host of potential man-made disasters such as climate change and a plethora of new technologies that only a handful of experts can understand and explain and over which a dark cloud looms, the dark cloud of doom, should the technologies spin out of control. Well, that's right. Like the tiny self-replicating nanobots that might smother the world in gray goo or the creation of a genetically new and destructive creature through the mix-and-match DNA play of synthetic biology— or even just the end of fossil fuels. Where are we going to get the energy when it runs out? Panic! Where's the panic button? Don't panic, because this optimist has seen the future and it looks bright, although the author says it took him a while to come to feel that way. Mark, in your book, you try to peer into a crystal ball, but there's plenty of precedent for that. I mean, from things to come by H.G. Wells to Ray Kurzweil's The Singularity is Near. Why'd you want to do this? You're stepping into... uh, the footprints of people who've gone before. Well, yeah, there's this great quote, which is uh, making predictions is always difficult, especially about the future. And I'm not, I don't actually really make many predictions. What I'm really talking about is uh, that we have a choice about how the future can be. And at the moment, the public discourse of the future is it's going to be pretty terrible. It's a damage limitation exercise at best. And having gone on this journey, I realized that wasn't the case. And it didn't start off with the word optimist in the title, actually. That was added in afterwards after I discovered all these amazing things and realized we have a choice about how our future can be. Well, undoubtedly, as you did the research for this book, uh, you talked to a lot of technologists because a lot of this, maybe all of it, is about technology, really. Can you name something that truly surprised you when you, when you learned that it was true? Well, I get asked this question a lot, and people say, what was the coolest thing that you discovered? And I came to the conclusion it wasn't one thing, but actually the way technologies combine to do incredible things together. And I always think innovation happens on the intersection of things. So an example I often quote is, I met a man called Klaus Lackner who's developed a technology that can take carbon dioxide out of the ambient air quite cheaply and efficiently, which is interesting in and of itself uh, if you're worried about climate change. But I then looked into the area of synthetic biology and discovered a number of firms now that have engineered bacteria to eat carbon dioxide and excrete gasoline. So you stick those two technologies together, you have a carbon-neutral petrol station where you can take your your fuels literally out of the sky. Well, can you be more specific? I mean, it's a, a device that can take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. I'm thinking of, you know, the tree outside my house. Oh, yes. My house, I can do that, and they're pretty cheap. Yeah, they are pretty cheap. Uh, there's two main problems with trees in this context. I'm not trying to infer there's any problem with trees. Generally, I'm very happy with them. Uh, One is that when a tree dies, it gives most of that carbon dioxide back because it rots and the carbon returns to the atmosphere. And the second thing is that, you know, they they have a rate of taking carbon dioxide out of the air, which is relatively slow because they, you know, they take it out and they they use it to grow and they grow quite slowly. And Klaus's machine is a thousand times more efficient and it doesn't give the CO2 back because you can collect it and then do interesting things with it. Okay, well, let's stay on this global warming subject just for a moment because, after all, if you grab the next 10 people off the streets of uh, Mountain View here, most of them, if you ask them about the future, this is the first threat that they usually name, that they say, you know, the world for our children is not going to be good because we're changing the climate. We're, you know, environmental de- degradation in general, not just global warming, but, you know, the disappearance of species and so forth and so on. It's a, a long laundry list of things we're doing to the planet that are bad. Mm. We seem to be bad for the planet. and. And after all, there have been science fiction stories that say that the aliens will come to Earth to save us from ourselves. Yeah, well, I mean, and they're right. Uh, You know, we we have, I mean, done terrible things to the planet, and the the global warming or climate change uh, threat is is very real and very present. Um, What I found out was that we could do something about it, that we had a choice. And I became very concerned towards the end of my trip that 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 choice had kind of been taken off the table. And, and, and therefore you end up with this discourse where we are all thinking, well, this is all pretty bad and there's nothing we can do about it. And, and the one thing I, I do know is if you can't imagine a better future, you can't make it happen. Well, the second thing that these people would name as a threat to our, uh, our descendants is probably the energy 
problem. The fact that we're, you know, we're using all this fossil fuel, which has its own environmental consequences, not to mention political consequences, but that whatever the consequences, we're just going to run out of it. Uh, your, your optimistic take on that? Well, I mean, we've never had an energy crisis. We've only ever had an energy conversion crisis. And the most efficient way we've found to uh, answer that is via fossil fuels. But the sun is waving this massive paycheck of energy in our faces every single day. And what we're doing, rather than trying to bank some of that check, is we're running into this saving account called fossil fuels. And we're, you know, like some crazy credit card crazed junkie just eating this stuff up. But, you know, for instance, when I talked about turning carbon dioxide out of the air into liquid fuels, that's one way we can do it. Solar power has been this uh, great hope for many, many years, but it's finally getting there. With the application of nanotechnology, you're starting to see this rapid increase in the efficiency of solar cells. And then it becomes a big thing. And that's just happening in a few countries now. An example, many people argue is Japan. And then you go to Japan, you realize that the solar power industry is growing at 109% a year. And only has to do that for five or 10 years, and you've got a a complete alternative energy revolution happening there. I may be wrong, but I think that the uh, total impact of solar power on energy usage in the world today is like at the one half percent level or something like that, a fraction of a percent. Yeah. But it's growing exponentially. In other words, it's growing so rapidly that even if it's irrelevant today, it's going to be extremely relevant you know, just in a matter of a few years. Yeah, and that's one of the things, towards the end of the book, I'm trying to make sense of uh, of everything I've seen and trying to find ways to think about the future that enable me to kind of get hold of it. And one of the things I had to really understand was the exponential growth of technology and the power and the way it does that, it doubles. And, and, and our minds are linear. We're hardwired to think linear. Certainly some of the people I met, Ray Kurzweil argues that, you know, our minds are linear thinking minds. And that means we, we really don't see things coming. And I think he's right. If you look at what's happened with information technology, you look at what's happening with genome sequencing, you look at what's happening with uh, fuel efficiency or uh, what's happening with solar power efficiency, you know, you suddenly start to see this exponential growth. And sure, 0.1 to 0.2 looks like nothing. But a few years later, when it goes from 100% to 200%, it's a big deal. One of the promises that is occasionally offered by the futurists is that of beating the ultimate uh, downer, namely death. you got guys like uh, Aubrey de Grey and, for that matter, Ray Kurzweil, whom you've mentioned here, uh, who are very optimistic about the chances of beating the death rap. Any of this impress you? Um, Impressed? That's a good question. It certainly made me think a lot. Now, we've always tried to cheat death. You know, ever since uh, we've realized that we were dying, we've come up with reasons to say that we're not. And, and we do that in one of two ways. Either we come up with some crazy scheme or some new medical scheme that we think will save us, or we say that when we die, we'll live forever on the other side. You know, religions, you know, make death a, a non-problem for you because, you know, and so we've always, as human beings, tried to cheat death. And up until recently, um, anybody that has tried to do it via medical means rather than religious ones has, has, has failed. I mean, they've all died. So, you know, they kind of lost that argument. <laughs> but there's now a There's now a fairly credible argument you can defeat death. It doesn't look so wacky. For instance, there are people wandering around the planet now with regrown body parts that have been grown from stem cells, placed in the laboratory, grown on a scaffold, and then put back into them. Suddenly, when you start to realize that you can have a replacement liver or a replacement heart grown from your own tissue, that starts to look credible. It's not so much like science fiction anymore. It's sort of like uh, keeping your car going forever by always replacing uh, defective parts. Yeah. I mean, if you wander to the Wake Forest Institute of Regenerative Medicine in North Carolina, they're growing 22 types of human tissue in the laboratory. That's not science fiction. It's happening. So um, it really does raise the question that that we might live a lot longer. And, and to be honest, we already are. I mean, the the lowest life expectancy anywhere on the planet 100 years ago was 22, and that was in Bangladesh. Today, the lowest life expectancy on the planet is 44, and that's in Afghanistan. So we've doubled the lowest life expectancy anywhere on the planet in just 100 years. The question is, do we start to live more on average than a year longer for every year that passes or less? If we get that, we get something called longevity escape velocity, and you can literally live forever. I mean, that's possibly a good thing. It's possibly a bad thing. I mean, really, you know... Are you planning a writing career till you're 500 years old? I mean. <laughs> no, but I mean, it, it, it is attractive in some ways because I do want to actually, you know, uh, maybe, you know, write this book and then I want to study mathematics for a while and then I'd really love to release a great rock album at some point. If I had an extra 300 years, you know, that would, that would kind of be cool. Perhaps the most dramatic development, it seems to me, I mean, there's a whole panoply of developments here and many of them promise very a- attractive things for our, for our future. But there is the question of machine intelligence. Now, you've visited the media lab at MIT. You looked at the robots there. They seem very keen at MIT to make these robots warmer and fuzzier. Yeah. Yeah, well, this is the whole field of sociable robotics. And people worry 
that if we make uh, robots smart, there's two versions of it, but the biggest version is that it will overtake us and, and we will become slaves to our robot overlords. But when it comes to artificial intelligence research, Stephen Pinker summed this up really brilliantly. He said, we've discovered that the hard things are easy and the easy things are hard. So it's relatively easy to get a computer to beat Gary Kasparov at chess. But, you know, that same computer can't cross a room without bumping into something or recognize a face or get your glass of glass of wine. Uh, so we're a long way off that kind of thing happening. And, and what you find with AI is that, that the machines are very, very good or intelligent in one particular field. Deep Blue, which beat Gary Kasparov at chess, is intelligent in the same way using a submarine to get to the end of the local pool is an efficient way to swim. You know, they're brilliant at one thing, but they're not multi-purpose machines. So I think we, we needn't worry. But the good thing about social robotics, I think, is that they're learning how to make machines interact with us in a way that we find easier to deal with. So I was talking to a robot, uh, and you know, we weren't having a great conversation, to be honest, but you know, if it didn't understand the question, it shrugged its shoulders. And when it was listening, it put its head to one side, and that made it easier for me to get on with it. So, and I think so, that's a good thing. So you like the interface, but, uh, you know, but the, the interface is great for us. But, you know, I think the, the, the deeper question here is not so much that, well, if I'm going to have a robot at home that, you know, takes care of my grandma or, you know, brings me that glass of wine or whatever, I'd, I'd rather that it be friendly and that I can interact with it by you know, gesturing the way I would to another human. Yeah. But what about, you know, the third generation beyond that when the robot now has an IQ that is, you know, four orders of magnitude better than yours? Uh, what's the threat there? I mean, are you still optimistic when that happens, if it happens? Well, I think we're a long way off that and we have some time to negotiate that relationship should it come to that. I mean, people like Roger Penrose believe that you know, consciousness is, is non-computable. I, I, I don't agree with him, but it may be the case that we never get there because there's something about our biological essence which means that you'll never get a conscious machine. One of the good things is that all these areas force us to phrase those questions really carefully now. You know, if you're trying to build something that's conscious or intelligent, well, what is consciousness? What is intelligence? What is free will? And we don't have answers to these questions. So it forces us to ask those questions, which I think is really good. But also, yeah, the whole threat about them being our overlords. Well, Ray Kurzweil would say there's only one option left, which is you merge with your machine. Okay, and we, we are already merged with our technology. So there won't be a robot race and a human race. There'll be a robot-human race and we'll become a... Homo evolutus. You're not worried that this isn't a bit like the horses thinking, don't worry, we're going to merge with these automobiles. <laughs> uh, no, because the horse didn't make the automobile. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, finally, Mark, since you're an optimist about the future, you probably get uh, attacked frequently enough at cocktail parties or whatever, where people say, look, we're going to heck in a handbasket. <laughs> what do you say to them when you get them, you know, like only two sentences before they go refresh their drinks? I say, well, if you think like that, we are. So you're either part of the problem or you're part of the solution. Fantastic. Mark Stevenson, thanks so much for being with us today. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Mark Stevenson is the author of An Optimist Tour of the Future. Are you going to take the anti-death pill if they come up with it and live forever? Well, I might, Molly, but honestly, the idea of having an endless string of uh, dental appointments just doesn't appeal to me very much. <laughs> Well, I don't know if the end of the world is nigh, Molly, but the end of the show is nigh. Thanks to our producer, Gary Niederhoff, production assistant, Barbara Vance, and volunteer, Jay Weiler. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, and thanks also to our listeners. You can find Are We Alone on iTunes and through the link on our website. If you're a podcast listener and prefer over-the-air radio, check out the listing on our site of radio stations that carry the program. Okay, Molly, just one more extremely important point I want to make before the mother of all clocks runs out here. Yes, please, go ahead. Okay, and that is, have you ever found it interesting that armadillos... Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.